Thank you, Chris, very much indeed. There are several books in the Old Testament that stand alone. They stand outside of the history of the people of God. We've looked at some of them already. The book of Ruth, with its great theme of God's salvation. The book of Song of Songs, with its great theme of human sexuality. And today, the great book of Job, as we think about the human theme of suffering. So without further ado, let's get underway. I hope you have your Bible still open in front of you. You might like to turn to the beginning of Job, Job chapter 1, and uh, we'll begin at verse 1, which seems like a jolly good place to start. Uh, I hope you'll agree. Job, Job 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. We don't know where this took place, and we aren't certain when. There are good reasons for thinking that this story comes way back in terms of where we are in our history, back to the time of Abraham and the patriarchs of his day. So quite a way back. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. What we need to know is this, that Job uh, is blameless. He's upright. He's a fearer or a worshipper of God. And as we shall see later in the book, There was a common hell philosophy in the day in which the book was written that the righteous, those who are blameless, will prosper. So it would be no surprise to the first time readers of this story that Job is not just blameless, but because he is blameless, he is also very blessed. He has everything human beings tend to want. Possessions, prestige, people in terms of a large family, a great house and family. But he loses it all out of a clear blue sky. For apparently no reason, humanly, from his perspective, suddenly he loses everything. In one day, everything he owns is gone and his ten children are killed. The physical cause is a natural or a series of natural disasters. And that's where we are, somewhere in the middle of chapter 1, verse 9. He's got everything and he loses everything as quickly as we've been told that he has it. For us, the most important question, the dominating response in our hearts is why? Why do bad things happen to good people? It's a huge human question. A great dilemma that has occupied hours and volumes and speeches and debates down through the centuries. We want to know why. Yet these verses force us to step back a little bit and face another question which is on God's agenda. Another question which in heaven's economy is more urgent, more demanding and more penetrating than our question, why, in the face of suffering. I want to invite you to hear the real question that's brought to us in these opening verses of the book of Job. And to understand that question, we need just to step back for a moment from the book and think about what we know. What we know is this. God is looking for, God is seeking a people that will love him with all of their hearts. 
That's what was at the very core of the law in Deuteronomy. The Shema that the Jews would recite daily. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your, and with all your strength. And they said it every day. It was the foundation of everything. God is looking for a people who will love him with all of their hearts. So when Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment, it was a no-brainer for him. And so straight away, without hesitation, repetition or deviation, for all you good Radio 4 listeners, both of you, Jesus without hesitation said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. I thought I had it on the slide, but I haven't. That's what God requires. That's what God seeks. So here the real question, we haven't got there yet, but God is looking for a people who will love him with all of their hearts. And come back to Job. From a human standpoint, his suffering appears to come from nowhere. We have a glimpse of the spiritual reality behind where his suffering came. But he did not have that privilege. Satan enters the throne room, we're told. Now, I'm a little wary of drawing too many detailed conclusions from this encounter because of the anthropomorphism of God and Satan as as dialoguing like they're kind of human beings. But the message is clear in verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replies. In other words, does Job love God, worship God, trust and fear God, the the same kind of root behind all those words, does Job do that for nothing? Satan is saying to God, yes, you're right, Job does love you, God, but he doesn't do that freely. In fact, Satan says to God, Job loves you, Because of what you give him. Because of what you provide for him. It's not true love. The only reason Job loves you is because you've given him a big house and a nice family and a great business and his health and his prosperous days. Satan says to God, Job only loves you for what you give him. Verse 10, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. That's why Job loves you. Job loves you, God, because you've been good to him and kind to him. Of course he loves you. Look what you've done. Verse 11 is the challenge. But, Satan says to God, stretch out your hand and take away, strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. If you put Job in different circumstances, Satan says, he will not love you like he does now. If you take it away, Job will curse you. God says, okay, Give it a go. I realize that raises all kinds of questions for us, and we'll come back to some of those questions in a moment. But stick with what I'm saying for a moment, this this theme that's being threaded through this opening chapter. God is bent on showing that Job's love for him is not subject to the circumstances that Job finds himself in. Here the real question being asked by God through these verses, do you love me whatever the circumstances? 
That's how the story is being set up for us. Will Job love God whatever goes on in his life? A love for God that is independent, a love for God that transcends the circumstances that he finds himself in. You see, our questioning in the face of suffering, why, why did this happen to me, reveals our love for ourselves and our love for our own lives. That's not altogether wrong, far from it. I love my life, therefore I'm furious when something happens to rob me of my peace and my happiness. I'm furious when my life is interrupted by pain and struggle and strife. I want to know why. I demand to know why this should happen to me. This is not fair. What that reveals about me is that I love my life and I love the things that I have around me and that's fair enough at one level but there's a deeper question here that God is saying do you love me more do you love God more than all of those things that's the real question being asked in these opening verses You see, a young, beautiful woman marrying a grumpy old man who is very rich raises our eyebrows. Does she really love him? Or does she just love his money? And there's a world of difference, is there not, between the two? His wealth gets in the way of him really knowing whether she actually loves him. God wants us to love him him, not simply the things he provides. And there's a world of difference between those, isn't there? If you were God, that's huge, isn't it? Job was about to prove that his love for God was greater than his circumstances and greater than his love for the things God provides. So verse 20, we get the calamity. It's all taken away. And then we get Job's response, rather, at verse 20. At this, Losing almost everything in a day. Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. In worship. In worship. Verse 21. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave... Now they've nicked the Matt Redmond song here. (laughs) The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away, may the name of the Lord be praised. The Lord is sovereign over all, Job is saying. I don't understand this, I don't like it, but I do know that God is ultimately sovereign. That everything in the end is in his hands and his name, his good name, is always worthy of all praise. My love for him is greater than my love for what I've lost. My love for him bigger than the calamity that has overcome me. My trust in him more certain than my trust in all this stuff that was around me. Job loved God more than everything and trusted God more than anything. True? True. Who is defeated because of Job's response? 
Satan. Satan is defeated because of Job's response. Don't miss that. It's really important in terms of our understanding. Satan would have won if Job responded differently. This is going to sound unkind and not very pastoral. If you don't want your pastor to say something unkind and not very pastoral, stick your fingers in your ears just for a moment. But I love you. And the truth is that the truth sets us free. This is the bit that's a bit below the belt. Who are you aligning yourself with by the way that you respond to suffering? That was unkind, wasn't it, for a Sunday morning? If all we do is go, why, 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 why? If all we do is jump up and down and get bitter and angry, all we reveal is our love for ourselves. Who wins? If Satan wins, who loses? No, God never loses. If Satan wins, who loses? We do. We do. Now, please don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm well acquainted with suffering, both personally and professionally. This is not a kind of in the face of suffering, just get over yourself and love God more kind of message. But it's a plea to love God more than anything. To love God more than you love everything that you could possibly ever lose. To love God more than your anger and your bitterness and your resentment and your grief. And if that sounds insensitive, then please hear this. As this book will show, the very answer to what we suffer, the very answer to what we suffer, is to be found in a love for God and in his love for you. Hear the real question at the beginning of this book. Do you love me more than anything. We go around this loop a second time, Job chapter 2. So uh, Satan goes back and says, well, okay, fair enough, Job did do that. But if I take away his health, the one thing left, then Job will curse you. God says, go on, try it. uh, Satan takes away Job's health. And what happens? Well, verse 9, his wife can't bear it. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. There's a pastoral response. Pray for wives like that. No, but Job wasn't moved. He loved God, trusted God, held God more. And verse 10, these brilliantly incredible words. The the language is soft, actually. You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Amazing words of faith. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Job held fast, as he would later say in chapter 13. Don't turn to it now, but it is on the screen. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in in him. In him. Hear the real question. How much do you love me? How much do you trust in me? How much is it me before anything? And everything else. If everything you have was gone by tea time this afternoon, would you still love him?
in God's agenda, that's the biggest question. In heaven's economy, that's the most pressing issue. And many of us have faced moments like that. Just over a year ago, I talked about a time when Emma, uh, Emma's now 13 and very fit and well. She was then 10 weeks old and uh, battling for her life in a hospital in Cardiff. Uh, And I shared with you about a year or so ago uh, a vivid moment at a roundabout. I could take you there right now. I was racing back to the hospital, driving as fast as I could because she'd started to stop breathing that night. Uh, And as I went around this roundabout, it's like time stood still. Uh, And I I said to you last year, uh, in my spirit I was confronted with this choice. Uh, God was speaking more audibly perhaps than I've ever known him speak. And the question was this, I put it in my, personally to me, if, if I lost my daughter that night, would I still love him? If she dies tonight, in the face of that, even if he slay me, which was what it would feel like, would I still love him? Maybe it's no coincidence that when I made that choice, and to be perfectly honest, I didn't think I had any choice. You can lose your daughter, or you can lose your daughter and your God in one night. There's not a lot of choice when your back's against the wall. But I remember as clear as day having to say in my spirit that that I'll stick with you, God, because I, I wouldn't know where else to go. Even though he slays me. Maybe it's no coincidence that when I made that choice, when I let go, God stepped in. And that night, everything changed. Maybe I'll put that on my blog if none of you, if some of you uh, uh, aren't aware of that. Do do you love him first? That's the challenge of these words. With all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, that's the real question. Okie doke. So I've taken 15 minutes to cover the first one and a half chapters. There are 42 chapters in the book. For an A star in GCSE maths, how long will it take Simon to finish his sermon? Okay, in just two minutes, we're going to get through 30 chapters. You don't believe that, do you? And neither do I. No. Okay, so uh, first thing, hear the real question. The second big chunk in the book, beware of human folly. Chapter 2, verse 11, right through to the end of chapter 31. Beware of human folly. The comforters, the Bible calls them, they weren't comforters at all. The friends, they weren't much very friendly either. Uh, Are you the kind of friends people want to see when they are in distress? Are you those kind of friends? Because these guys weren't the kind of friends you really want to see when you're in distress. They turned up to comfort Job, and for seven days they said nothing. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. And just this little cameo at the end of chapter 2 is a really good case study of how to care for people when they're in shock and trauma and suffering. Keep your mouth zipped up. Weep with them and cry with them and pray with them. So for seven days it worked perfectly well. One of them was called Zophar and so far so good. But then it all went downhill from then on in. Uh, uh, And uh, 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 they started to open their mouths. Now, these three men are presented as being older men. They are elders in society. They are men steeped in the thinking of their age. They are full of human wisdom who have studied the ways of life, learned from their own experience and from the earthly wisdom that's gone before. Now, just as an aside, the book of Job is part of the wisdom literature in the Bible, which makes a comparison between human wisdom, which is folly, 
and God's wisdom, which is real wisdom. And so these older men are presenting all the human wisdom that seems so clever and so articulated and so, well, just the way it is, but it was to turn out to be dreadfully wrong. You can sum up all those chapters, almost 30 chapters, in just one sentence. They were saying, God blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked. Therefore, Job, you must have been really wicked for all of that to happen to you. Job struggles through those verses with those friends because in his heart he knows that he was blameless before God, but yet all the world is shouting at him, you must be a right what's-it, sort yourself out, mate. And this battle goes on, this struggle goes on inside Job. And we, of course, know that what these so-called friends are saying is not the truth. Because we've been told in chapter 1 that Job is blameless. And we've been given a clear understanding as to where his suffering came from. So this mass of earthly wisdom is shown to be false. All the wisdom that earth provided did not make Job feel any better. At the end of chapter 31, Job was as miserable as he was in the middle of chapter 2. He's scraping the sores with a broken clay pot. So we're now at the beginning of chapter 32. There's hope, isn't there? See? And we're shown that there is a bystander who's been, as it were, listening in to this conversation of these old wise sages who were peddling God's folly. His name is Elihu. And this young man takes the courage to speak up in the face of these, in inverted commas, learned men. And as he does, we enter the final section of the book where we discover the true answer. Verse 32, chapter 32, verse 4. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, you see, this poor man Job was suffering. The whole world had gathered all its wisdom and offered it to Job, and he still what? Okay, we'll try that again, okay? Forgot what I was saying now. So, here we go. Job's at the end of chapter 32, uh, chapter 31. The whole world has amassed all its worldly wisdom and offered it to Job, and Job is still suffering. Worldly wisdom offers us, in the end, nothing. That's the setup here. That's the setup. And Elihu is furious at this. And don't you sometimes get furious when, the, when, when all kinds of claptrap is peddled around the world to help people and achieve nothing? Every magazine of self-help in W.H. Smith that achieved diddly squat in the end. So Elihu, verse 6, said, I'm young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. Isn't that sometimes the truth? All the big, learned, worldly ideas intimidate us when really it's just folly. I thought age should speak. Advanced years should teach wisdom. 
very kindly saying, I'll let you guys go first because I thought you'd know a thing or two. But actually, you were clueless. You've run aground. You've brought all your arguments. And Job is still in the right pickle that he was in when you started. And we've had all these words and we've got ourselves absolutely nowhere further forward. Clearly, the righteous do suffer. Clearly, the wicked seem do seem to get off scot-free. What's going on? How do we make sense of this? And then here it comes in verse 8, a key moment in the book. Verse 8, chapter 32 as Elihu brings something different to the table. He says, it's the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty, that gives him understanding. Earthly wisdom is folly and offers nothing. Earthly wisdom offers this dilemma. The answer to the struggle of suffering is spiritual. Really important point in the book. The answer to the struggle of suffering is spiritual. You will not find an answer to suffering by looking at the physical world. If all you see is the physical, then senseless things happen every moment of every day. If you look at just the physical, none of it makes any sense. The answer to the dilemma of suffering is spiritual. Go back with me to chapter 1. Remember what we're given, the insight there into chapter 1. We're introduced to Satan, and what's Satan been doing? Roaming around the earth. why, Why bother telling us what he's been doing? Because it's important. Because this world in which we live is fallen. This world in which we live is broken. It's in the grip of evil. The God of this age, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, is in the grip of, uh, this world is in the grip of Satan. The powers, the Bible says, of this dark age. In the general, fullest sense, because this world is broken, Because Satan rules around the place. He doesn't ultimately rule, but he rules around the place. We've given him permission to rule in the earth. Things are broken and marred and there's pain and there's suffering every moment, every day. The cause of the fallenness, the cause of the brokenness, sin. If we hadn't sinned, we'd be in the garden and Satan would be outside. Seems like a good idea now, doesn't it? You say, well, I didn't sin, actually. That was Adam and Eve. Let's be absolutely clear. You have aptly demonstrated to yourself and everybody that had you been Adam or Eve, you would have done the same thing. So we suffer because of our sin, certainly, because we live in a broken world. And sometimes there's a direct link to that. Some of us today are really suffering because we've made some wrong choices. We're trying to work through and sometimes living years, even a lifetime, under the consequences of wrong choices that we've made. But is all suffering related to personal sin? That's what these wise so-called men were saying. No. And Elihu will say they were wrong. And by the end of the book, God himself will say that they were wrong. Jesus said the same thing when he talked about the Tower of Siloam. There was a calamity in Jesus' day. And they said, well, how bad were those people? Jesus said, that's not the right question. We live in a sinful, broken world. Bad things, wrong things happen. People suffer. The struggle of suffering, though, has a spiritual answer. Every pain, 
every suffering, every trauma, every torment is a reminder that this world is not where it should be. Every trauma, every pain is a reminder that this world is not where God wants it to be. Every pain, every trauma is a sign that this world will one day not be this way. But still the pressing question, why does God allow it? What do we make exactly of that relationship between God and Satan? Clearly God is sovereign and Satan can only do what God allows. But, but why does God allow it? Is God really willing that Job would suffer? Is there a purpose that justifies that suffering? Hey, these are tough questions, aren't they? And you know, you're sitting here and the car's still dirty. <laughs> this is a joke. It's just a joke. What Elihu does is, though, is what we should do. When he's faced with something he doesn't understand, he starts with what he does understand. And instead of looking to the physical, he looks to the spiritual. Instead of looking to earth, he looks to heaven. And what follows is the most God-centered speech of the whole of the book. He declares truth about God, that God is good that God is just, that God hates evil and will deal with evil fairly and justly, that in the end God will win and it won't turn out like this. And so he focuses on what he knows to shed light on what he doesn't know. We have to do the same thing. There are some questions that we don't understand the answer to. But there is much that we do know. We know that God is loving and kind, that he's just and he's fair. We know that the whole story of uh, of redemption is God wanting to rescue us, to save us. We know that history is marching uh, unstoppably on and on and on to the day when there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And nothing will stop that process that God has underway right now. True. So we know some things. We know that God took your sin and your suffering so seriously that he nailed it with his son to the cross. And so when there are things we don't understand, we need to bring, switch on the lights of the things that we do understand. Does that answer the questions? Mm, not sure. Not sure. And Elihu addresses the fact that it doesn't quite answer the question. What he says as he builds this picture of the greatness and the grandeur of God, he says some questions are left unanswered because you cannot understand the answer. You calling me thick? Think about what Elihu is doing in these passages of presenting the grandeur of God. You see, like a grasshopper, seeing no good purpose in the lawnmower coming towards him. Like the goldfish, oblivious to life beyond the bowl, our understanding is so little, so limited. It's not just me, but all of us. We're so small. And so here it comes in verse 22 of chapter 36. Whoops, we had it there already. God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him or said you have done wrong? He's building this picture, verse 26. How great is God, he's what? He's beyond our understanding. 
standing. The number of his years is past finding out. One, two, three. No, he's older than three, four, five. No, he's older than that. And what follows is a brilliant revelation of who God is. And Sally was quoting from it earlier. Chapter 37, verse 23. uh, It comes to a, a climax. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness, he does not oppress. Therefore, men revere him. For does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? Then God himself speaks, picking up this same theme that Elihu's been presenting. Look, there are things you do not understand, and you cannot understand them from your perspective. God makes the same point, verse 1 of chapter 38. The Lord answered Job out of the storm. Who is this? Who is this little Job, Dan? Who is this little tiny man that he darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? And so it goes on. It's a great piece of uh, poetry. It goes on right through to chapter 42. And God is saying to Job, Job, I know you are suffering. Job, I know it looks unfair. I know it's all topsy-turvy. I know people have said it's all your fault. And I know you do not understand what has happened to you. But Job, you are very, 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 very small. And Job, you wouldn't understand it even if I explained it to you. So I invite you to trust in my goodness. I invite you to trust in my sovereignty. I invite you to trust in what you do know. That nothing has happened to you, God says, that I'm not aware of that I'm not concerned about. Nothing has happened to you, Job, that isn't beyond my reach. And when God had finished, Job said, verse 1 of 42, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? This is the confession. Surely, I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. Why? 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 It's not fair. It's not right. What kind of God allows this to happen to me? I spoke of things I do not know. Don't miss what's happened here. Elihu was brilliant. He was brilliant because he did what we must do. Elihu said there sometimes there isn't an answer that we will understand. But Elihu did so much more. This is what Elihu did as he presented this glorious picture of God, who in the end holds all things, in the end weaves his good purpose through all things, as Elihu built this brilliant picture, and he drew Job back to focus on God and who he was and what he's like. What Elihu did was this. He says to Job, the answer to the struggle of your suffering 
is found in an encounter with the Almighty God. That's what Elihu does. In the end, Elihu gives Job not another lecture. He's had enough of those. Not another defense, not a debate. Elihu gives Job a revelation of God. And the answer for Job in his struggle with suffering, in the end, was not found in a preposition or a precept or a proposition. The answer to Job was found in a revelation of knowing the person of Almighty God. If you are hurting today, you do not need an explanation for your hurts and your suffering for two reasons. A human explanation will not satisfy you. God's explanation will not be understood by you. So what you need, what I need, is an encounter with the living God. It's in God himself that we find peace for the struggle of suffering. Not in clever answers and worked out systems. Not in propositions or precepts, but in a person. Like Job, we need to encounter the person of God. And as Job saw God, saw again his love and his faithfulness and his trustworthiness, as Job again saw that God was sovereign in this world that from Job's perspective sometimes appeared way out of control. Job made a first step to recovery. And as he encountered the person of God, Job began to encounter again the presence of God. And this is the trouble with wrong theology. You see, so many times people think, what's happened to me is somehow God's fault. So the last person I want to speak to right now is him. I'm angry with him. How dare he let that happen to me? And we turn our back on the only person that can help you. Is that not true? Because of our screwed up understanding of God and human sinfulness and all the rest of it. But as Job gets this revelation right of who God is, he gets ushered up into God's presence. And it's such a relief. He says, my, my ears had heard of you. I, I've got this revelation of the person of God, but now I'm encountering the presence of God. Now my eyes have seen you. He says, therefore, I I despise myself. I've been so stupid, so foolish. All the struggle, all the doubt, all the uncertainty, all the panic. I feel so silly about that, God, now. Because I see you had it all sorted out. You had it all in your strong grip. Nothing was outside your love and care for me. To know the presence of God, who holds everything in his hands, is the place where we find peace in the midst of our suffering. Jesus promised that, didn't he? Heather was really helpful in reminding us earlier, the day of Pentecost, I'll send you another. How many times have you said, I I wish Jesus was with me here? (laughs) Hello? Hello? I'll send you another who is like me, stronger than that, who is one of me. How does that work? I don't know. Another like me. And he'll be a counsellor, or the King James Version says, comforter. Be be there for me. 
What Job discovered in the Old Testament is what we know to be true in the New Testament. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, he gave himself as the comforter. We must encounter the presence of God. So God reveals his personhood. He offers us his presence. You know the great thing is that he keeps his promise. Finally, Job encountered the promise of God, and so must we. Job was more than restored. Verse 10, he gets a job back. Job got a job. It's quite funny, isn't it? The Lord made him prosperous again, gave him twice as much as he had before. Verse 12, he gets his business back. Verse 13, following, he gets his family back. Verse 16, following, he gets his health back. And so he died old and what? Full of years. You cannot judge whether it is right or fair until the story is over. And your story is not over. Does God promise to fully restore you? Yes. Absolutely. Unequivocally. Yes. That's God's promise in Christ. No, no reaction for that? No. By the time God has finished with you, the only thing that will be unfair is the way that God has blessed you way beyond what you deserve. That'll still be unfair. The only thing that will not be right is the way that your sins will have been separated from you as if you weren't responsible for them. That will still, in a sense, not be right. When God has finished with you, you will despise yourself in the Job sense. In the sense that he did in verse 6 of that last chapter. He couldn't believe how unsure, how uncertain, how full of doubt he had been now that he's back in the presence of a loving almighty God. When God has finished with you, you'll feel like that. How could I have been so faithless, so full of doubt, so, so easy to turn when things got a little bit tough? When God has finished with you, you will wonder what you were ever thinking that you did not always love him, back to chapter 1, always love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When? Will God do all that for you? I cannot say. God in his grace and his mercy brings signs of the coming kingdom into this life. You might get lots of things restored in this life. We're encouraged to pray to God for that, to cling to those, to reach into the heavens, to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to bring heaven into earth. That's the cry of our hearts. And sometimes we see it when sick people are healed. Sometimes we see it when people are oppressed and they're freed up. Sometimes we don't see it. And we don't understand. So we don't understand all the answers. Let's not only have all the things we don't understand. Let's shine the light of what we do understand on the things that we don't understand. But a day will come when every single thing will be restored to you. And the only thing unfair is that you didn't get what you deserved. And the only thing not right will be that somehow you can live as if you never sinned. 
the richest in life, I mean, not wealth, the richest, the most beautiful people I know are those who've discovered a love from God and a love for God that is greater than anything else they have or have lost. And to be honest, those who've discovered that kind of love for God and from God are often those who've suffered the most. And would say with all honesty, if I had my time again, I would still choose that road. That road that nearly killed me. It was as if I was almost slain because of what I found in the anguish and in the pain. 